The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. 500 years ago, a movement began that changed forever the way that we think and talk about our relationship with God. Now, depending on your church background, you may or may not know much of this history, but about 500 years ago is what we know as the start of the Reformation. And a man by the name of Martin Luther, in his day, in the 1500s, he saw some problems with the institutional church, and he decided that he wasn't content with not saying anything. And so in October of 1517, he decided he was going to start a discussion. And so he posted 95 statements on the church door. And it started a discussion. In fact, it stirred up debate and anger to the point that forever changed the trajectory of the Christian church. Because what Luther saw is he saw that there were some areas where the church had gone off message. And so as he pointed those out, the religious leaders got a bit upset and so what Luther did, he said, there are some things that we need to, to get back to. We, we need to look at what does the Bible actually see, say. Because see, see, in Luther's day, what people had begun to believe is that, is that God's grace could be bought. That if they did enough, if they paid enough, if, if they were good enough people, then God would be pleased with them. And so Luther, as he started to read and study the scriptures, what he realized is what, is what the priest and what the pastors had been teaching him was not what the Bible was actually saying. And so as he began to read the scripture, specifically the book of Romans, he, he be, light, light, a light bulb went off and he, and he said, something is different about this. Why did no one ever tell me that this was in this book? And so he pushed the church and said, here is what the church is built on. Today we're beginning a new series called Here We Still Stand. Because just as in Luther's day he stood before those he opposed, saying, here I stand, I can do no other. Today we still stand on those same truths. That God's grace is free, it can't be earned. That the truth of God is in the scripture alone. And that God calls us to love and serve our neighbor. We still stand on those truths today. Now, as we, as we go through this series, what is, what is true about this series is we are using this series to also honor some of our history. And so we will reference Luther a bit because of the history, because of being in 500, 500 years since the time of the Reformation. But I want to make it very clear, especially if you come from a different church background or if you have no church background, um, this is not a series about Martin Luther. Right, I want to make, make sure that we understand. This is not about Luther. This is a series about Jesus. This is not about Luther's ideas, it's about the Bible's ideas. Right? We don't worship Luther, we worship Jesus. And even Luther himself had some skepticism about the movement he accidentally started. All right, now keep in mind, this was an accident on Luther. He didn't want to start a new church. And so when he accidentally started uh, th- this movement, he had some skepticism about what people were doing with his name. And so I want to share this with you because I think it's really interesting. L- Luther said this. He said, the first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Which is a little bit ironic being here. I, I, I realize that. But, 
But, but and here, here's the point why, why I share this. See, see, Luther himself was a bit uncomfortable with, with, the, with the obsession of Luther. Um, in fact, he didn't become okay with people using his name until his name was actually treated like a bad word. Like those Christians, oh, those, oh, they follow, they follow the teachings of Luther. Like once his name was a bad name, then he's like, all right, I guess we're good with it. All right, so, but, but, and here's the point. So even Luther wanted to be cautious that the focus wasn't him, but Jesus. And so we are, we are honoring some of the history because what Luther did in his day was he pointed people to Jesus. He obsessed with the message of grace. He, he relentless, relentlessly pushed. He was not willing to back down because he said, God's grace is free and you can't tell me otherwise because when I read the Bible, this is what it says. Years ago, growing up in this church, I remember a sermon series, one of the earliest sermon series that I remember the theme that, that carried through. I believe I was probably a high school student at the time. And in the, in the series that Pastor Arndt was preaching was through, on the book of Acts. And so Pastor Arndt preached through this book of Acts, and, and the series, the, the whole theme was first century church, 21st century and, and so the whole, the whole idea, as, as we looked into the book of Acts, was to look at the, what was the message of the early church? What were the things that the early church was teaching? What was, what was the, the content? What was, what, what was the message? Because that message then is the same message we preach today. Right, that power, when we look at how the Holy Spirit was working in the day and age of the apostles, and how, how people, were, were, lives were being changed by the power of the gospel, it's the same, it's the same thing. But now it's the 21st century. So things look and feel different, but it's the same message. Same church, a different century. And what Luther did in his day was essentially ask the same question. Or do you realize that he's essentially doing that in the 16th century? He's asking, all right, how do we get back to what we've drifted away from? How do we get back to being a first century church, but in the 16th century? How do we be what the book of Acts describes, but in, in Germany in the 16th century? What does that look like? And so he pushed some things in order to bring the church forward, embracing some things and innovating in some ways, while bringing the church back to the teachings that the church was built on in the very beginning. And so today we continue to ask those same kind of questions. What does it look like for us to be a first century church in the 21st century? What does it look like for us to still obsess over God's grace for us? There are three truths that I believe that the Reformation was built upon. That throughout this series we will unpack each of these in a number of different ways. And those, that begins with this idea of grace. Grace is central. See, in Luther's day the church had fallen prey to this belief that, that grace could be bought. That you could pay a few bucks and you'd get a piece of paper and, and that piece of paper would guarantee that you and God are good. Right? That is literally what happened in Luther's day. They were sold pieces of paper called indulgences and those indulgences would say you and God are good. Or you could buy it for somebody else to guarantee that, that a loved one who passed away that they would be good with God. And so people begun to, to buy into this belief that, all right, but based on what I do, based on my charity, based on my good works, my good behavior, buying these pieces of paper, if I, if I did these things, me and God are okay. And when they would talk about grace, because grace, it's not like grace was entirely foreign, but the idea of grace was simply, all right, grace was something that, that was done to get you in, but then it was up to you. If, like, if you really wanted to be right with God, all right, grace got you in the door, but if you wanted to be right with God, you had to do more and more and more and more. That what you did determined whether or not you were right with God. God's grace just gave you the opportunity to become right with God. 
And so Luther would open the book of Romans and and suddenly come to the realization that everything he was always taught was not what God wanted him to believe. And now what's important about this is these ideas weren't new ideas. In fact, Luther just simply opened the Bible. And he happened to believe that the Bible is true. And because the Bible is true, what happened then in Luther's day is he, him and the other reformers wanted to, to see, all right, how can we make sure people read and understand the Bible? Uh, again, so, so these are not new truths, or these are very old truths. This is what Jesus and the disciples wanted, that for people to believe and study the scriptures. And these are not ideas that we are going to drift away from. Why? Because we want people to read the Bible because we believe the Bible is true. And so in Luther's day, when people would come, come to worship, Worship would be in Latin, and so they spoke German, but worship was in Latin. So there was a bit of an experience where they didn't really always know what was going on. And so if you've ever been, some of you might be new to the whole church thing, and so maybe you've, you've been, to ch- been to church and the whole thing seemed a bit foreign, like you don't know what's going on, you don't know what they're talking about, or people are standing up and sitting down. Right? If, if that's foreign to you, imagine be, coming to church and it be all being in a different language. All right, so, and so he decided, all right, we need to do something about that. We need, to, we need to make sure that when people gather together, that people can actually understand the Bible. Why? Because we believe it's true, and so we want people to read it and understand it. And then they also began to translate God's word into the language of the people. That people who could never read the Bible actually were able to read the Bible. And thanks to the technology in the day, with time, that people would actually be able to own Bibles of their own. Or at least be able to easy, have easier access to Bibles. Now, we don't have the same challenges because we can, most of us can take out our phone and read the Bible in a plethora of choices of translations. But the reality is still the same, that the Bible is true. And because we believe the Bible is true, we want it to be accessible to you. And so that means we're going to teach it in a way that you can understand. And that we're going to teach it in a way that, that hopefully encourages you to reopen the Bible and read it and study it yourself. Because if we believe it actually will change your life, we want you to read it because it might change your life. Now, as the Reformers also studied God's word, what they realized is that, that within their relationships, that the system that they were a part of put people into a hierarchy. That there, that there were the monks and the nuns and the priests and the missionaries, that those were the people who were called by God, and everybody else was in a different category. But as they studied the scriptures, what they learned is that relationships matter, whether they're at this level or this level, because all of those relationships matter because we have been called by God and placed into, by God into certain relationships that he wants us to love and serve our neighbor. We are called to love one another, regardless of whether that's in your family, in a church, in your community, with your neighbors or coworkers, God has placed you in the midst of relationship and called you to love one another. And that is a sacred and holy calling. Those truths are what was pushed forward in the 1500s, but is also what was pushed as Jesus went up against the religious leaders of his day, as the the disciples started the Christian church. And today, we still stand on those same truths. Because while our world might change, while things might change, and and the way things sound and look and feel might change, that message will not change. Because we still stand on God's grace, God's truth, and a call to love one another. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 5. 
If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1,753. Now, if there were any book of the Bible that were most influential at the time of the Reformation, it would be the book of Romans. See, the book of Romans is a very systematic book of the Bible in which it describes God's grace. It describes words like grace and justification and righteousness. And so you have to imagine in the 1500s when all that you ever learned was that you earned God's favor, then opening the book of Romans and for the first time reading in your own language that that was not the way things worked. See, Luther, two years before he ever, ever nailed the theses on the door of the church that sparked the Reformation, he already had been having his life changed by the book of Romans and began to teach other people about what he learned in the book of Romans. And, what he, what, and I can just imagine, like I just imagine what it was like being a student who had never heard the gospel in their life. A, a, a student who believed that, that, that they would never be good enough that, they, could, that, that they, like, they, they felt like here's all the things that they should do, but they just felt burdened. And then here for the first time, the book of Romans read to you. And to learn that, that Christ died for us. That while we are still sinners, that he died for the ungodly. And so I want to begin reading just a chunk of Romans in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now there's one phrase in that passage that I believe describes how incredible God's grace is more than any other. And that's that's the phrase that Paul used, when we were still. Right? Isn't that unbelievable to think that that's what God does? When we were still powerless. When we were still sinners, that's when Jesus gives himself to you. See, see, God doesn't wait for you to get your act together. God's not waiting for you to be strong enough. God's not waiting for you to stop sinning. God's not waiting for you to be committed enough, religious enough, smart enough. God's not waiting on you to change while you are still sinners. That's when Jesus gives himself to you. When your life is still a mess. When things are still in pieces, that is exactly when Jesus gives himself to you. See, the beauty of the gospel is not that God helps those who help themselves. The beauty of the gospel is that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who, who can't help but continue to, to do what they shouldn't do. God helps those who can't, who can't help themselves but, but not obey God. God helps those who can't help but feel stuck, but feel trapped, but feel alone. That's who God rescues. Not those who are strong enough. God rescues those who aren't strong enough. And so Paul describes two important situations when he says, while we were still. 
And both of these are related and very connected to one another, but they, old, but they both also speak to, to different moments of our life and the way that we feel and the places that we need God's grace the most. So Paul says when we are still powerless, when we are still sinners. And so I want to speak first to that, that idea of being powerless. Right? What are you looking for when you're powerless? I mean, think about that for a minute. When things are powerless, when you feel like life's out of control, or what does that look like for you? It's the, that, that's the moment when you, 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 can't, you just can't do it. You, you can't win, you're not strong enough, you're too frustrated, you're too hurt, you're too angry, you're too alone. You're too anxious, you feel worthless, you feel sick. Right? It's in that moment where you say, God, I just, I just can't do this. God, I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I'm godly enough. I don't know if I'm committed enough. I just don't know if I can fix this. Right? That's powerlessness. That you look at your situation and you feel overwhelmed by it all. And here's, and here's the thing about powerlessness. When we feel powerless, we often grasp for control. See, see, here's the reality about what Paul says. When he, Paul says, when you are still powerless, what he means for us is, is that while your life is still a hot mess, Jesus shows up in that moment. Right? Whenever, when you feel like things are out of control, not once you regain control, but while it's out of control, that's when Jesus comes for you. And most of us, if we are honest, that's not what we want to hear. Now, you might be thinking, well, well, no, that is what we want to hear, right? That's the good news. But, but be honest. I mean, really be honest. Do you, when you're out of control, want to hear that you are still out of control? See, most of us, I don't think, actually want to hear that. No, no, that might be what we need to hear, but what we want to hear is that we can regain power, that we can regain control. Because most of us, if we are honest, are addicted to control. Right? We want to control our relationships, our finance, our situation, our health. We want to be in control of all those things. And so when something shows up that was not in our game plan, everything begins to spiral out of control. And we start grabbing for anything, for something. Because if we can control that, then we'll feel better. And see, what, and what so often happens is we can't fix the situation we're in, and so we find something, just something we can control. And so maybe it's our, our, right, our, our relationship with our boss is out of control, and so we can't control what's happening at work, but, so, but I can control my relationships at home. And so I'll power up at home in my relationship with my kids and spouse because that's out of control there. Or my relationships at home are out of control, and I can't control that, but I can control what I eat or what I drink or what I watch. Or I can't control, I can't control what, what, what so-and-so said to me, but I can control how many hours I put into work. And so what we do, and we all do this because we are all addicted to control, is where when, when our life begins to swirl around and everything feels like it's falling apart, we look for that one area of life where we can regain control because at least that will make us feel like we've got some power over it. And, and this is not just a... Just a life thing. This happens in the church too. Like we, we do the same thing with religion. Do you, do you realize that? So, so, and, and some of you, some of you may be new to the whole God thing, and so you might be here, and this might just be a little insight into to how, how twisted this gets sometimes, because some of us actually use the whole church thing to be that thing that we can control. 
that if we are dedicated enough, committed enough, read enough, do enough, right, then that will be the thing that we control. One theologian actually said uh, about religious people, he, he described this, this same thing when he said that we are in bondage to spiritual ambition, legalism, and tyranny. No, again, it's not that spiritual ambition or devotion is a bad thing. No, it's a very good thing. But when we use that thing to regain power for ourselves, we are missing the point of why God gives us those things. Because when Paul tells us while we are still powerless, what he's reminding us is that the solution to the out-of-control powerless we f- powerlessness we feel isn't regaining power, but it's finding the one who has the power. And so if you're in one of those powerless situations, the confession of the powerless isn't I'm guilty, but I can't. Now there might be plenty for you to feel guilty about. There are plenty of sins for you to feel guilty about. But I'm specifically talking about that situation that you feel is out of control, that you feel you're powerless against. Right, the abuse, the anxiety, the depression, right, the thing that was said or done to you, that when you feel like it's all out of control, your confession in that moment is, God, I can't. I can't defeat this. I can't fight this. I can't overcome this. And it's in that moment where Jesus says to you, I know, but I can. That is the promise that while we were still powerless, Christ died for us because he rescues us in that moment. And you might not be able to handle it. You might not be able to do it. But Jesus can. And so Paul, Paul though, not only says powerless, but he also talks about while we are still sinners. And now those are connected because we are powerless against sin, right? We can't forgive ourselves. We can't erase guilt ourselves. But when he speaks about being a sinner, he is speaking about, uh, he's speaking a little bit differently, because when we talk about sinfulness, right, this, this idea of guilt is different than feeling powerless. Right, when, you're, when, you are, when you are guilty, you don't feel like you're powerless against something. You actually feel responsible. The confessor of sin feels responsibility. It's, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I, I knew that was wrong. Will she forgive me? Will, will God forgive me? And so Paul speaks into that, and he speaks into our guilt by saying, when we were still sinners, not once we stopped sinning, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That his death removed the guilt. That we've been made right with God. And so as we confess our sin, we feel this responsibility because we knew we shouldn't have done that. We knew that we shouldn't have said that. Yet what Jesus does for us is he doesn't give us what we deserve. See, see how crazy is it that what Paul says is while we are still sinners, that's when Jesus gives himself to us. I mean, have you thought about how crazy of an idea that is? Like I've witnessed many interactions with my kids where I tell them to stop doing something. They apologize to me while they continue to do the very thing I told them to stop doing. And you're laughing probably because you're a parent. But, 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 so I witnessed that, and, and, and I cannot imagine in that moment just being like, oh, no big, no big deal, we're good. Like, like it, that blows my mind, but that is exactly what Paul says God does with us. He says, while we are still sinners, not once we stopped sinning, not once we fixed the problem, not once we overcame sin, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
That's the promise, and that is scandalous. No wonder the religious leaders freaked out. No wonder the religious leaders in Jesus' day freaked out. No wonder the religious leaders in Luther's day. And religious leaders, I guarantee you, will freak out in our own day when we preach that kind of grace. See, people accuse grace of being cheap, but it's worse. Grace is free. That's the promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That if we wanted to pay for it, we couldn't. Because the only price that could be paid was paid by the death of Jesus. And so Paul describes this freedom saying, we have now been justified by his blood. That the blood of Jesus makes us right. Now that word justification is a little bit of a strange word to many of our ears because it's not a word that we use every day. And especially when it, when it comes to um, th- thinking about our relationship with God, it's an important word, but it's a little bit of a foreign word. And so I think the best way to understand that word justification is actually by talking about how we, how we will use that in normal life. For, for example, here's, like, I will use the word justification in normal life when it comes to bad behavior. That's typically how I'd use it. For example, if, if I, um, in, in high school, when I looked at a friend's test um, and, and the teacher caught me, what I would do is I would justify myself. I'd say, well, I was just checking to see if they were done. Or, or, um, or in small group, when I talk about somebody behind their back, like I shouldn't have, and then I would justify myself and say, well, I just wanted to make sure that we were remembering to pray for them. Right, that, right, that we, we justify ourselves. Or I did something wrong that I knew I shouldn't have. I'd say, well, I, I'll... The Bible isn't really clear about that. Or, or I, I'll justify it saying, well, it's not really hurting anyone, is it? Right, what I do in that moment is I'm, just, I'm justifying myself. I'm making myself feel better. I'm making myself seem right in my own eyes. That's what justification is. That's all it is. It's making, it's making ourselves right. And we, we'll do that when we do things that are wrong. We'll, we'll even do that even if you're not a Christian, you do that. I don't, I don't know if you realize that, but we all justify ourselves. We want to make sure that we are right. We'll, we'll, we'll even do that with things like, we'll, like with things that are not entirely not related to God. Like it, we'll, we'll do this with the way that we look, with the things that we own, with the things that we have. We justify ourselves because we want to make sure that we look right in the eyes of somebody else or in our own eyes. And so we, just, we do whatever we can to make sure that we seem like we're right. That's what justification is. Justification is making something right. And so when the scriptures tell us we have been justified by the blood of Jesus, what it is reminding us is that God has made us right by his blood. That there's no excuses, there's no minimizing sin, simply God making it right. It's simply God paying the price that we couldn't pay. God doing what we couldn't do. God purchasing what we couldn't purchase for ourselves. And any of you who have ever tried to justify yourself, you know that the longer you do it, the more tiring it gets. Because no matter what you hold up as the standard, no matter what excuses you come up with, no matter what you try to look like, no matter what you try to have, no matter what it is that you use to make yourself feel right, you'll never feel like you're good enough, will you? Making it right for ourselves is exhausting. Because we're trying to buy what's already paid for. And this is what Luther fought against in his day. People were trying to make it right by buying a piece of paper. This is what Jesus fought in his own day as he would confront the Pharisees. People were trying to make it right by their religious behaviors. 
And this is what we continue to fight in our own day. That we are trying to make it right for ourselves. And it's exhausting and fruitless. And the reality is that we have been already made right with God. God's not angry with you. Because God's already made you right with him. God's not waiting for you to stop sinning. Because God's already removed the guilt. God's not waiting for you to get strong enough to regain power over your situation because he's already has the power over that situation. See, Paul in Romans says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, I don't know what you bring with you in here today when you sit in these seats. I don't know what it is that you feel powerless against. I don't know what it is that you feel guilty for, but I want to speak into those places this morning. Because if you come in here today and you feel powerless against something, you feel like things are overwhelming, you feel like you're frustrated, you're hurt, you're alone. I I don't know what it is and I don't know why You feel that powerlessness. But what I do know is what God always teaches us in those moments. God always teaches us in those moments where things feel out of control. Are we going to rely on our own blood, sweat, and tears, or are we going to rely on the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus? See, Paul says for us, while we are still powerless, Christ gives himself to us. And so whatever it is that you are up against this morning, that you feel like it's just out of your control, that it's too big, too much, too powerful, Jesus says to you, I know it is, but I am greater. The promise to you this morning is that if death couldn't stop Jesus, then I'm pretty sure whatever it is that is is too powerful for you is not going to stop Jesus. And so that there is nothing that you can go up against. There is nothing too big, too great, too overwhelming for the love, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because when death doesn't get defeated, nothing else will stop Jesus. And that is the promise of you that Jesus guarantees, that he says, this is your promise. It's for you. That when you say, I can't, Jesus says, I can for you who are overwhelmed with guilt because you've just screwed it up. You said something, you did something, you ran away from God, you just said, I'm done with this whole thing. The promise of Jesus is not that God's waiting for you to turn your life around. The promise of Jesus is that he's chasing after you, that he's gonna meet you in the midst of the mess that you caused and there is no sin that is too great for Jesus. And so he finds you in the midst while you are still a sinner and he finds you there and says to you, your sins are forgiven that that is the promise of Jesus to you. You are not guilty. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. See, whether you are here feeling powerless, whether you are here feeling guilty, the death and resurrection is God's grace to you this morning. Saying that there is nothing too big for your God. And Jesus' promise to you is that you are forgiven 
and that you are rescued by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your incredible promise that you love us, that you forgive us, that while we are still powerless, that you have rescued us, that while we are still sinners, that you died for us. And help us to hold on to those promises. That instead of regaining power and control of things that we think we can control, help us to hold on to you and you alone. In the midst of our guilt, help us to, to hold on not to our own goodness, but hold on to yours. Help us, Jesus, to see ourselves the way that you see us, as loved, as rescued, as forgiven.